Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. Our show today is all about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a trade deal between the United States and several Pacific nations. It's currently being hammered out in Congress, and there's not a clear indication of whether or not it'll pass. Uh, it's very, very complicated and giant. And to help us explain it, we talked to Robert Cooterly, who is the Orville and Jane Freeman Chair in International Trade and Investment Policy. He's also an adjunct faculty member with the University of Minnesota Law School. Uh, it's big, kind of chewy show. There's a lot of details on trade policy and tariffs and economics uh, that we get into. Um, I'd also like to thank our sponsor for the show, MinPost, which provides reader-supported news and analysis. You can go to their website at www.minpost.com. If uh, you like the show or have any comments, you can also feel free to email me at brandon at t2p2.net. Also, we'd appreciate if you uh, filled out a review in iTunes, uh, because those sorts of things help find other people uh, who might be interested in hearing our podcast. Um, that's all for notes. I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. Are you going to read all of that? Yes. Yeah, if I, it's, if, I, if I run out of things to say. Okay, I'm very good. So, thank you so much for being here. I very much appreciate this. And um, so, we're here to talk about. It's really easy. Uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership. I'm sure, if anything, it's going to be a challenge for us to stretch this into you know 15 minutes. But uh, but if I could just in like uh, you know in a 30 13 seconds, what is the Trans-Pacific Partnership? Ready, set, go. It was a proposal by Lee Kuan Yew of Singapore uh, to a limited group of countries, not including the United States, back in 2004. The United States joined after this gentleman, who was sort of the father of Singapore, uh, talked to Barack Obama, and it fitted with U.S. foreign policy goals to try to uh, reorient our policy toward the Far East. And so this is a fascinating uh, piece, and uh, I, I want to dig more into the sort of generals of, uh, of this particular deal, but can you talk a little bit, and, and I know you're an economist and that's a lot of your expertise, why do we want to pivot towards Asia? What's the, what's the philosophy sort of behind wanting that sort of movement towards Asia in terms of trade deals and uh, other areas? Well, economically, it's huge. I mean, we spend 90% of our time, it seems like, now talking about the Middle East. But Asia is really the present and the future of the world economy and also of great power politics. Is that just because of population size? or Well, it's because of the growth of China. I mean, if China could be big in population and still not be the way it is now if it had maintained the previous economic system. So it's a, it's a big challenge. Uh, and it's not a, probably not an accident that Lee Kuan Yew, of one of the smallest countries in the world, Singapore, proposed that we get involved because, you know, they can't defend themselves against anybody. <laughs> yes, uh, terrifying. Um, so, uh, so let's talk. Let's dig into uh, just trade deals generally a little bit more. Okay. Uh, so, I, I guess the, you know, as the as an economist and, and somebody who's uh, seen some of these, uh, you might get. Why? Why do we want these gigantic trade deals ever? Right? Like, I think that some people would say, uh, you know, these deals are massive, and no, even if maybe they have some good effects, they're going to be extremely complicated and have all kinds of unintended consequences. I mean, uh, what's what's the argument for just having a, a seventeen nation trade deal to begin with? Well, it's the same thing that has motivated much of our activity in the international area since the Second World War 
and that's increased prosperity. I mean, the numbers, you can't believe all the numbers you see, but a lot of, uh, a lot of the numbers suggest that something like uh, that the trade deals that we've had since the Second World War have increased our national income uh, by about 7.2%, and it's increased the purchasing power of people at the bottom of the income distribution by uh, something like 62% in terms of purchasing power. Now, that has to be balanced against job losses. And that's what some of these models of, of the TPP have tried to do. They've tried to combine job losses and uh, with uh, increased purchasing power. Now, and I, I was a very good uh, B plus student in your class, so I know what purchase. I don't remember the B plus. I know you're a very good student. But uh, I know that a uh, uh, what. Per but let's unpack a little bit a couple of those terms. So when we talk about increased purchasing power, what what does that actually mean in real terms? Well, it means that the price of stuff goes down. I mean, you've, I think everybody has seen uh, what the impact of Donald Trump's proposed tariffs would be. Um, I don't know if everybody has. I, it's my, there's, Donald Trump has said some other things that got in the way yeah, that, of us looking into yeah, the details right. of his trade that, policy. That, that's probably right. But if you take what he says seriously about trade, uh, we could have skyrocketing uh, import prices uh, because uh, some of our default tariffs are as high as 45%. And so that makes it basically so that everything that's not like actually made here, right. uh, it goes up in Im price. Imports that now cost a dollar could cost a dollar forty or dollar fifty, or in that range. And right. so, uh, you know, you do hear though on uh, a lot of folks say, um, you know, maybe that's okay. Maybe we should be making more stuff here. We should be building more stuff here. That. Uh, this sort of, uh, you know, you hear it in sort of very uh, aggressive terms that it's just a race to the bottom otherwise sure. of who, who can do it the cheapest. Right. Well, I mean, I think that most economists who've looked at this have, have concluded otherwise, and that is that trade can be mutually beneficial and can raise incomes uh, of both partners, and that goes back to David Ricardo at the uh, beginning of the 19th century. And it's been refined since, but never, as far as I can tell, ever really overturned. And the countries that are supposed to gain the most, and these are only estimates from the TPP, are the poorest countries. Vietnam, for example, is supposed to have an increase in, uh, in GDP, which would be GDP per capita if, uh, with the same uh, population, of about 8%. Malaysia would be about 7%. So those are huge. Uh, increases just from a trade agreement. And even the United States, which isn't in terms of percentage supposed to gain from it, is estimated according to the most recent estimates. And again, these things, you can question the models, but I don't think you can question the integrity of the people who did the work, of about one half of 1%. So to the 7.2% gains in overall income per capita for the country since the Second World War from the trade deals we already have, this would be another one half of 1%. Doesn't sound like much, but that's hundreds of billions of dollars. Well, one of the one of the studies that I saw, I think it was a World Bank study, suggested that in the United States we might see incomes and exports rise in certain sectors, but it wouldn't actually lead necessarily to an increase uh, of jobs in the United States from this. Is that sort of your understanding? Well, the the transportation jobs is a really tricky question because it's the thing that people care most about in the short term and for understandable reasons because that's where the human suffering is. Right. We don't all have tenure. Jobs. I mean, exactly. right? So hip, hip, hypocrisy is one of the big problems in all of this. As I'd be happy to happy to confess, but the, the, but if 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 you do 
uh, lose your job. Uh, it's terrible. But on the other hand, there we have, for example, 135,000 people uh, in remaining in the garment uh, industry in the United States because that's really gone. 135,000 apparel, I should wow. say. And some of those jobs could be saved by not signing the TPP. On the other hand, uh, the gains from those lower prices, from those low-income countries, uh, those, the, the, the price gains go almost entirely to the lowest uh, 45 million people in the United States. So that's the trade-off. Uh, most people... And again, when I say most people, I mean most economists who've looked, looked at <laughs> There this. are people well, other than economists. I understand, I understand. <laughs> but I mean, people who've looked carefully at the numbers is what I mean, uh, which, which uh, is what I think most economists would tend to do, would think that the answer is not to avoid getting more engaged with the Far East or other parts of the world, but rather to try to help people adjust. Because, for example, the loss of manufacturing jobs in this country has been tremendous in the last uh, 10, 12 years, but only 15% of that has been due to trade. 85% of that loss of manufacturing jobs has been due to technological change, and you know nobody's trying to ban that. Well, I mean, there's that Maybe Luddite Maybe some people group. are. Yeah. Uh, right, yeah. Okay. So, uh, okay, so let's talk about, uh, let's try and walk through as best we can in the time we have to, like, what are the actual provisions of the Trans-Pacific Partnership that, that we should care about? So I, I think the first one, and you, we've already started to talk a little bit about this, is uh, tariffs and taxes. And so is it that, you know, we signed this deal and then it's just flat? It's just, uh, you know, me selling uh, my uh, rice or sunflower seeds or uh, computer chips. Uh, it's I can sell them just as easily in Vietnam or Japan as I can sell them in the United States? Pretty much. I mean, nearly all the tariff lines go down. So tariffs are essentially abolished, but tariffs are fairly low now in many industries, though not so much in this part of the world in some of the developing countries. But there's also much greater freedom for uh, international investment, much greater protection of intellectual property. That's, that's very controversial because some people identify that with, with uh, making pharmaceuticals ex expensive and so on. But that's mostly carved out. The United States has a tremendous uh, stake in protecting intellectual property because that's a huge part of our export earnings, entertainment, uh, software, and so on, and and this is uh, this really keeps people from stealing our intellectual property. There's a big trade secrets element to this. So if you steal American trade secrets, you can be uh, you can be prosecuted. And so, and who would you actually? This is just a, I don't know. Who would you be prosecuted under? Who? What is there a there TPP are, court? There no, but that's a that's a great question. I mean, there 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 are there you're you're meant to enforce this under your domestic law, and if you don't, uh, there are uh, there is an essence of a court that is an arbitration procedure that uh, takes it up. I think uh, some of the cynics in the room might say, well, you know, there's there's lots of instances of the United States breaking trade deals or, or uh, um, interfering with, you know, uh, trade agreements or whatnot. And just because we're the biggest gorilla in the room, uh, you know, even if we lose the court case, it doesn't matter. Uh, is there anyone who's Brazilian in the audience? Well, no. actually, um, actually, it turns out that, if you, that this is something that people have really jumped back at, is the fact that these, these arbitration uh, uh, cases, either by country or by industry versus the state, 
are particularly unbalanced one way or the other. People do have problems with the fact that the arbitration isn't subject perhaps to as much appeal as it might be, and that, you know, that's certainly something that could be improved and perhaps will be as the World Trade Organization improved on the GATT. But most economists on the, on the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which prevailed until 1994, I we were, uh, some sort of bug. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so the trade deal can be improved. Uh, I do want to go back to this uh, pharmaceuticals piece because that was one mm -hmm. of the big critiques, or one of the things a mm -hmm. lot of uh, opponents point to is: yep. Do we get to go in then to uh, you know uh, the Philippines and say? That drug that you've been using is now patented, and you have to pay us every time you're using it. No, that doesn't seem no. potentially I mean, 99% of all the drugs that are being used are off-patent anyway. And, and the ones that are essential for public health purposes uh, can be negotiated with the I mean, this was one of the big issues. This was one of the issues that made Mrs. Clinton, in a previous incarnation, refer to this as the gold standard of, uh, of trade packs. Um, she doesn't like it when you bring that up anymore. She, um, she, she's apparently moved on to whether platinum or something. <laughs> so, anyway. But I suspect she'll be back, but that's, that's just a guess. Um, but, but, but seriously, this was a big issue that uh, labor standards, environmental standards, uh, the carve-outs in intellectual property for pharmaceuticals and so on, those were, those were big, big controversial issues that people railed about in previous PACs, and this one uh, is much more stringent in those areas than the previous ones were. And there's also a piece in the TPP around uh, opening up sort of the the channels of information that uh, you can, the that individual countries can't sort of put, uh, they can't block certain kinds of content the way maybe they, they are now. No, that's right. Uh, the, there's, there, there, there's, a, there's a general openness and transparency about, mainly about commercial uh, activities that would make it extremely difficult for the Chinese to join now. On the other hand, if all these other countries join uh, and get together, the Chinese have a choice. They're either going to be left out or they'll have to adopt the same policies that the countries that are in have, which include not just more transparency and openness, uh, but uh, openness about and the deletion of subsidies to state-owned enterprises, sort of unfair trade, and control of finance, which has the same impact. Well, and this is another interesting piece is the, you mentioned the state-owned businesses piece, which actually isn't just, it, there's places in Vietnam and Malaysia and exactly. some other places that That's have right. state, and so the, right. part of this would be uh, I, well, you you can describe this, I'm sure, better than I can. Uh, you can't do that at all anymore, or it's limited? It's, or? It, it, all of these things are phased in. But basically, the reformers in Vietnam get an enormous uh, boost from this, because just like the reformers under NAFTA in Mexico did, they can point to their international agreement and say, we've got to do it. Are there uh, are there sort of stopgap... For a long time, people have kind of talked about fair trade versus uh, free trade, and um, I think that there's a lot sort of wrapped in that in terms of labor standards and environmental protection. So uh, does this agreement have things in it where it says it's not just a, a race to the bottom, it's not just who can produce these things the fastest, but that if we're going to open this up to you, then you have to meet certain workers' standards or Absolutely. things? Absolutely. I think it's sometimes misunderstood that poor countries do not accept the imposition of environmental standards or labor standards. They regard it as 
uh, interference with their uh, sovereignty. And so these were resisted by Malaysia, resisted by Vietnam, uh, but in order to get in on the thing, they had to agree to much more stringent labor standards, uh, including uh, adopting the ILO, the International Labor Organization standards, uh, agree to increase and never go back on environmental standards, much more, uh, much more protection of, say, logging and natural resources and that sort of thing. So uh, you mentioned just a moment ago China is not a part of the TPP, uh, right. which, you know, if we're thinking about a pivot to Asia and, uh, the, and the fact that Asia is growing, right. it would say, why isn't China a part of this? It seems like that's that, you know, it's sort of like in having, a, 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 I don't know, I'm trying to think, like having a full house reunion episode uh, and, and then not inviting <laughs> like the Olsen twins. Yeah. That's a real thing. Happened. <laughs> well, I think that there's to be no. Fair, they were invited. They just had not show up. <laughs> Same thing. Okay. There is a there is this broader foreign policy goal that we have, which is to allow countries not to fall entirely in China's thrall, and more positively to encourage China to liberalize and open up more. And that's one of the major reasons that the president, who's not generally regarded as a right-wing character uh, or even a particularly market-oriented character, is in favor of the TPP. So, well, this actually brings me to sort of my last bit of questions here. And I should say, in the second half of the show, uh, we open it up to all of you to ask questions of our guests. So please start thinking about that. But in the meantime, I wanted to so, – uh, you know, Hillary Clinton uh, – is has now come out against the TPP uh, while she was still in the primary. She did that. Uh, Donald mm. Trump is very much against it. Obama is for it. So it's like mom and dad are fighting. Who am I supposed to side with here? Uh, like, you know, who whose love do I need more? Who do I want to spend my weekends with? Uh, I, I can't answer that for you, Tane. Okay, sorry. but <laughs> I, the political question of like, how did this, how did trade get to be so divisive and problematic no, politically. That's a, that's a really, that is a great question and something that, that is an embarrassment to social science because nobody really predicted this sort of perfect storm from the standpoint of, say, the president um, of the left and the right sort of getting a hold of protectionism at the same time. Uh, there, there's always been in the trade union part of the Democratic Party great resistance to trade deals because of the membership and lots of union members have lost their jobs in part because of trade. But I, again, I want to stress that in manufacturing, 85% of job losses have been due to technological change uh, or more than that actually, uh, only 13% roughly uh, due to, to trade. But on the right, you had, for a long time, the Republicans were the high-tariff party uh, until uh, Taft was defeated by General Eisenhower in 1952. And then big business, which supported so the Republican Robert party. Robert Taft, a, not, it wasn't that no, Teddy, Taft, or not that, yeah. Not his father. Not, not his, his father, father. didn't no, live no, on, no, no, uh, no, right, yeah, right. sorry. But, uh, yeah. yeah <laughs> and, and so you've had, uh, and you see that strain receding in the Republican party, but then you get these eruptions of, Ross Perot and Pat Buchanan, uh, which should have kind of alerted people to the fact that if somebody really did a full-throated number the way Donald Trump did, 
that, you know, you could actually make something out of it. Well, that, I guess that's my question in terms of the politics intersecting with the economics. I mean, uh, we're a democracy. Folks have uh, every right to, to vote in their own self-interest. Absolutely. Are they, I mean, are all the folks who are really upset and angry about uh, past trade deals uh, and potentially this one, are they wrong to be as upset about this as they are? I can't say that. But I would say that the numbers suggest that of everybody losing jobs, uh, only about one-tenth of one percent is due to trade. Of all of the separations in the labor market, only about one-tenth of one percent is due to trade. Is that guy here, uh, that guy who, no, uh, it might be more than Well, no, but I mean, that's right. If it's your job, you don't care how many other people uh, lost their job. That's true. So. Uh, so, I, again, we're going to come back for, for questions for, for you in a second. But the last thing I wanted to ask on this, though, was uh, do you know – are there any Minnesota specifics that we know about with, that might come out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership? Like, Well, for one thing, the sugar industry was saved, <laughs> got a carve out. Uh, so we're still going to be paying uh, another $11 a person a year every year uh, in excess sugar expenses because – Sugar wasn't liberalized, so that won't mean... Sugar is not part of the TPP? No, no it's not. That you seem very sad about that. Like, uh, yeah, it's like a, it's, sugar is it's kind almost of my Halloween. Thing. Yeah. No, but it's. Uh, I mean, this is the this is the example of uh, the, from Paul Krugman's textbook of really crazy protection because it doesn't even save jobs. There are more jobs lost in the candy industry because of our excess excessively high sugar prices than are saved by a factor of three or four in the uh, you know in the sugar industry. Well, on that very sweet note, uh, ladies and gentlemen, a big, a big round of applause. Our guest, Dr. Robert Kuhle. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, if you have a question, uh, raise your hand in a non-threatening manner, and I will come towards you uh, with a microphone. Yes. Could you tell us um, what about the agreement Hillary no longer supports and what happens to the TPP if the U.S. doesn't sign and participate? You know, I don't really know. It's a great question. Terry McAuliffe, her guy who's very close to her, uh, the new uh, governor of Virginia, uh, sort of let, uh, let it go some time ago that uh, she would look favorably at positive action on the TPP during the session before the new Congress comes in. But I don't know whether that's true or not. I think, I think one, one thing that's very likely is if we don't go in with it, others may go ahead. It's obviously going to look very different. But I mean, a lot of people say, well, why don't we just back off and sort of think about it for a while? Well, you know, the rest of the world is not going to, you know, is not going to stop considering because these there's a proliferation of regional trade agreements uh, we didn't talk about that but I mean there there are now dozens and more sprouting up all over the world because countries are seeing this perhaps wrongly but seeing this is the the way forward okay oh yes questions all around right over there um, so, something I've wondered about is it seems that with this policy that's being proposed they seem to have taken every effort possible to exclude any public input or public participation in the process, mm -hmm. um, that Congress people are uh, forbidden from taking notes that they can't leave in the room, that it has such a high level of mm -hmm. classification that 
congressional aides that don't have high security clearance can't even be in the room to look at it. It's, it seems that like eventually we're going to be handed something and told, here's the agreement, sign it or don't. There's no changing. And so how could we do that better? Well, I don't know. This is a this is something that lawyers and probably some political scientists understand better than I do. But because our trade system is quite different from that of other countries, that is, these negotiations have to begin with authorization by the Congress, which is quite different from the way other countries operate. We've got to they other countries are not willing to bargain with us unless if, if there's this iteration between the legislative and executive branches of government. And that's why over many decades, we have essentially delegated to the executive the right to negotiate these things. People have always negotiated these things in private. And so there's not, I mean, there's, there's nothing, it may not be a good way to do it, but it's the way it's always been done with all trade agreements. Uh, th this is a, a good follow-up though, I, 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 or a follow-up that I wanted to ask, which is just uh, we're having a lot of consternation in the United States over whether or not are any other countries that we know of uh, really like sort of fighting it out this this harder? Is it just if the U.S. signs on, then everybody else is ready to go? I think at the moment the countries that are in the other twelve countries are pretty much in now, uh, and it's most of the countries in this region, save uh, Korea and a couple of others. Uh, Korea is in a complex situation because it's still trying to uh, uh, sort of digest the U.S.-Korea free trade agreement. I mean, it's controversial everywhere. I mean, the trade unions generally don't support freer trade uh, in every country. And um, obviously, there are anti-globalists in every country that don't, for other reasons, that don't, that don't favor the free. But I think, it, I think that on the whole, these countries, other than the United States, will try to go forward, but it's it's be hard. I mean, it's very hard to predict and answer the, the question over here. I don't know what's going to happen if it if it fails. Okay, uh, in the front, and then I'll come up there. Yeah. Uh, due to the trade in the robots that you were talking about, alluding to earlier, you know, our our economy's gone through a lot of transition. And clearly, a lot of people who feel left behind by that transition are now expressing that in the political process. Right, right. What, what would you do for these people? If you could tell the next president and wave a magic wand, here's what this country should be looking at to kind of help these people, what would be the answer if there is one? Well, there are a number of things that can be done, but we can't know whether they're going to work. Uh, you know, we're very optimistic people, and we always think, for example, in this kind of situation, that increased education and training would be a great help to, for people to to be better able, more nimble at operating in a in a sort of environment in which you have to have some knowledge of technology. In other words, the, there are plenty of jobs apparently coming up, at least if we can believe labor economists, for people who are both pretty good, dexterous, uh, and also tech savvy, and also have some personal skills. And so, so I. That's those are the jobs of the future. But what's happened is we have not helped our poor people in this country for a very long time. Uh, we don't help poor people in general, and we don't help. Well, I mean, not. I don't mean we don't at all, but I mean not the way we might. And we haven't helped at people who have been displaced by technology or by trade the way we uh, a lot of people think we ought to. For example, if we extended the earned income tax 
credit, we could get everybody up to effectively $15 an hour without the problems that you get when you try to do it with a minimum wage, because you've got to be in the labor force in order to get the, and so on. I'm not making a case one way or the other, but I mean, there are ideas. What has been tried up till now hasn't worked, and that's been a combination of extended unemployment benefits and not very effective uh, training. When I say not very effective training, actually the people who were involved in the training made less money afterwards than the people who didn't. So that's pretty ineffective. Wow. Um, but I'm sorry, I, I really, you know, I really don't have any any great answers. I think. Personally, I think we're going to have to have a more distributive tax system, which I think is superior to making the pie smaller, uh, which is, I'm sorry to say, I think what a lot of the protectionist policies would do. Okay, uh, we had hands up here, so I'm going to go here and then make my way up. Well, to change the subject a little bit, I would sure. like to know your thoughts on the national debt. I beg your pardon? The national debt. Your thoughts on the national debt. This is sort of out of left field, but it's audience question time. So. Or, or right field, maybe. I, yeah. Excuse me. No, 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 but I, I, th I, think, I think one of the things that's happened is that the concern about the debt has just been submerged by other issues in a way that uh, often happens, actually. This was, as some of you may remember, after the turn of the new century, it was a big deal. People were really, particularly after the Bush administration, ran up these enormous deficits uh, with uh, Medicare Part D and so on, with completely unfunded, and people paying no attention to deficits at all. They were going to, this was a big national uh, campaign, bipartisan campaign. It's just been lost now because of more pressing problems. So I mean, that's not a good answer. But uh, in other words, what I, what I tell my students is the national debt problem has not gone away. It's just been joined by lots of other problems. Yeah. So so just to, uh, whether or not it's part of the conversation, I guess, uh, it, it, should we be talking about it more from your expert point of view? And and then I'll just throw out there that I've heard some folks, some economists even argue that um, no, this is we shouldn't be worried about. We have, like you said, we sort of have bigger problems, and so if we can borrow money, do it to to solve those other problems. So, just as an economist, whether or not it's actually part of the conversation, should we be worried about the debt? Should it be something that we're talking about more? I think if we borrow in order to really invest and not just label social expenditures investment, but I mean actually like infrastructure investment and so on. Interest rates are very low and so on, so that makes a great deal of sense. But over a long period, longer period of time, we do have to be concerned. And that's why I think, uh, and again, I don't, this is not a partisan uh, talk or, or presentation at all, but just as a matter of fact, I think there are almost no PhD economists in the country that support, uh, at least at major universities, that support uh, Mr. Trump. And one of the reasons is that, you know, when, he, when you look at what he's proposed, although it's very hard to figure out exactly what it is, uh, you know, it's, a, it's going to increase the national debt by, you know, I don't know, six, seven trillion. I think he was at seven trillion. They got it down to three trillion or something. Uh, Mrs. Clinton is just, uh, you know, at least if you believe what she's saying and her numbers, uh, a few hundred billion, which really isn't, you know, given the size of our national debt really isn't all that much. But uh, at some point, we're going to have to, at some point, we're going to have to pay attention. The only question, I think economists always say that at some point, we're going to have to pay attention. It's just a question of how soon it's wise to do that. And I think with, 
you know, bridges falling down all over is probably maybe something that we can uh, borrow to ameliorate and then take care of it a bit down the pike. But leaving problems for future generations is a really big, big social problem, I think. Okay, we got a hand up here, and then I'm going to make my way back down. My question is kind of about the link between um, sort of foreign policy in terms of security and the trade agreement. Mm -hmm. So China has increased its territorial claims and waters by countries that would be a part of this trade agreement. Right. And if China's excluded from this trade agreement, do you mm -hmm. think that would sort of amplify the security or territory-based tensions in the area? Or would this be some, some sort of leverage to pull things back from getting too tense? It's a great question, and I just have to admit that I don't really know the answer. Just make it up. It's, uh, it's fine. <laughs> it's an improv show. The, the, I, I mean, the intent of all of this is not to provoke China, but rather to entice China and to balance China. And whether it's done effectively and has that impact, I think we can't really know. Okay. Did I see there was a hand here? Yeah. Actually, it was an eyebrow raise. Um, so I'm pretty ignorant about all of this, um, but uh, I'm just thinking about since the year that I was born, there are more than double the number of people on Earth. We're at like 7.4 billion. I believe it's increased by like 4 billion since I was born. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about trade agreements, I think we're talking a lot about GDP. We're talking about growth. Mm -hmm. And is there a part of this agreement or how does it fit in where we're, we're talking about not just growth, 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 but reducing our impact, reducing our footprint. Mm -hmm. Are we going to have those kinds of difficult conversations, or are we going to be very single-minded mm -hmm. and, and only talk about growth? Like I said, I'm super ignorant about it, but I'm just very cognizant that we are going at a pretty breakneck pace right now, and I, I personally don't understand how it's feasible. Well, it really has, you know, your question, if, I, if I'm understanding it, and I think it's beautifully phrased, and, and correct me if I'm not uh, understanding it, we are both despoiling the environment at an enormous rate, and there are more of us. And that has to be taken into account in any public policy planning. I think, personally, our biggest failing uh, is not to do something about global warming which is you know, completely independent of this, what we're talking about tonight. Although the TPP does have environmental uh, clauses in it to protect any further despoilation of the, say, through uh, uh, timbering and that sort of thing, and no, lo no lowering of any country's environmental standards. So they're not as strong as they could be. But that's one part of it. I think also most countries have limited their population growth naturally uh, over time. The, the only continent that hasn't uh, yet is uh, substantially is Africa, which is uh, growing at an enormous rate. And there are many now very low population countries in Africa that will have populations greater than many European, big European countries uh, within the next few decades. And it's not clear how that's going to how that's going to play out. Well, as a just quick follow-up to this, and uh, is I've always found it curious. It seems economics is inherently built on there. You always have to grow. Like there always has to. You're always sort of chasing that you're going to grow, and that does seem like at some point won't we won't we just run out of room and capacity and things? And uh, does anybody ever look at an e economics of just sustainability of sure, just sort of flat? Sure. 
Sure. Um, uh, John Maynard Keynes, the economist, the famous economist of the 1930s, uh, thought a lot about this. Uh, and most, many very thoughtful economists don't anticipate growth going on forever, but rather uh, stabilization. But it turns out that as long as people want more, they're going to want more. Oh, God. And when they stop wanting more, then, they, so, you know, I think it's a, it's a, and then you can argue about why they want more and whether or not it's artificially created, and there are all kinds of questions like that. But the, the fact is, uh, politicians are at least roughly, roughly, uh, uh, you know, have to be responsible to their electorates, and their electorates want more growth. I have a, a friend, a colleague at, at, uh, in the Harvard Economics Department, has an interesting theory that if growth stops, uh, you know, we're going to be at each other's throats. Um, uh, and that basically increased material welfare is what makes people generous, more generous toward each other than they would otherwise be. I don't know whether he's right or not, but it's a, you know, it's a pretty scary prospect because the growth now is about half what it was over most of the early post-war period. Okay, we got one more question right here in the front. Now, I know a lot of people in trade unions and things, and, and when we talk about this issue so often, it's, it's almost as if this is the one thing they can get a handle on. Mm -hmm. And right. have, you, you talked a little bit about a, a failure of social science to make a connection. And, and it's the idea that I hear so much when I hear TPP, it's often, you know what, yeah, this might be not the entire problem, but it's the only thing that anyone's talking about. And I feel like I'm left out of this discussion. And maybe it's 0.1%, but that's my family. And, mm -hmm. and so how do we get at these kind of discussions that don't have, like we said, the people who are not in this room, because they are very much not in this room no, right now. No, How no do we handle that? I, you know, I really wish I could answer that, that question. I mean, the fact is that people are hurting. People are discouraged. They're disgusted. They think they've been sold out by politicians. And it's easy to see why they believe it. You can show them numbers that show that, you know, even if we didn't have any international trade at all, but we had the same technological uh, trajectory, that the situation would be essentially the same. But you know, it, it's it's just hard to make that hard to make that case. And uh, there are all kinds of other reasons why people are are disenchanted as well. But I, I you know, I'm I'm very sympathetic to to people who who feel that way. It used to be you could make a good living with your hands, uh, and you just can't anymore. So maybe another way to frame that uh, as sort of a, a close. So whether it's the TPP or a future trade deal, uh, if folks in this room are, are trying to figure out, like, is this good or bad? How should I feel about this particular trade uh, agreement, this particular mm -hmm. proposal. What What is the question or couple of questions that they should ask, either of their elected leaders or of a brilliant economist, uh, uh, anybody? I mean, what are, what are the questions that, because I feel like a lot of folks don't even know what, what they should be asking about this. Well, I think the question personally that they should be asking is what can we do to allow the pie to get bigger and make sure the pieces look more like what we want? Uh, because if, if, if the choice is between making the pie uh, static or making it smaller uh, and giving a somewhat larger relative share to uh, people we feel are more sympathetic, that's, you know, that's a fairly melancholy prospect from my point of view. So I think we should figure out how to help people uh, who are, uh, my own view is we should try to help people generally, not just people who are harmed by trade, because that's a very small part of the total social problem here. 
On that very generous, beautiful note, ladies and gentlemen, a big round of applause, Dr. Robert Cooter. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Our show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to see us in person, you can find our schedule by going to www.t2p2.net or find us on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks.